Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 523. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows in the network, please go and visit evergreenpodcasts.com. This week's interview is with Barish Sherifsoy, who holds a doctoral degree in finance from Goethe University in Frankfurt and the Diplom Kaufmann degree from the University of Regensburg, as well as an MBA degree. He has over 20 years of experience in wealth management and investment banking, having worked in three countries, and he's currently partner at GreenCap, where he advises on M&A transactions in the renewable energy space. He's also co-author with Nick Perriman of Leadership in Wealth, Mastering the Opportunities of Wealth in Your Family, Firm, and Society, which came out in January 2023. In this conversation with Barish, we discuss his book, The Ways That Leadership is Different When You're Wealthy, How to Establish and Keep Trust, How to Transmit Your Business, Values, and Fortune, What Constitutes and Keeps Happiness When You're Wealthy, and much more. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And if you have a moment, go ahead and drop in a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. I had to practice that a couple of times. Thanks for coming on the show. In your own words, who is badass? Well, thanks, Minta, for, for having me. Um... So who is Spanish? So first of all, uh, a small correction, if that's okay. So the the name comes from Turkey, from from Turkey, and in uh, in both my and the S on my uh, first name and my second name, you have to think of an thing underneath the S. So it's actually Barish and it's Sheriff Soy, but you you can't know that. So. Indeed. Well, thank you for correcting. Yeah, yeah. Had I had I realized that there was a little sedia, yeah, yeah, I might exactly. have thought about it. Absolutely. No, no, I love worry. I love languages and you know it's a Exactly. So yeah, um what 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 is to say about me? So I, I was I'm Turkish of origin, but I was born and raised in Germany. My parents came to Germany to study and met there, and then they just stayed there. Um I grew up in a small Bavarian town. Uh, in Ingolstadt, so my father worked for Audi for many years. That's why it's, we, we were there. And I also did my school mostly in Germany. So I, I studied in Germany. I did a bit of uh, studies in the US as well. And after my studies, um, I decided to go for a, a PhD in, in finance. So I stayed a bit longer. And this is uh, always the debate I have here in the UK with my my colleagues that make fun of me that I was almost 30 when I started really earning my own money. Yeah, for every student. Like, exactly. <laughs> Whereas here people are obviously starting to 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 make money when they're 22. And uh, and uh, I must say I je ne regrette rien. It's it's been it's been good. Uh, I enjoyed my time there. But you know doing a PhD just takes takes some time and it, it uh, so I was I was almost 30 when when I then finally uh, considered doing uh, some 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 actual work, and I joined um, uh, a bank, a UBS at the time, of still UBS, um, and I spent actually most of my professional career there. So I was there for fourteen years. Spent two years in Germany in Frankfurt. Then I was in the mothership in in Switzerland in Zurich for another two or so, 
And then I came to the UK. My, my wife is French and we felt that London is A, A we met in London and B, we just felt it's it's the easiest place for, for multicultural families. And here we are still uh, going strong after 14 years. Um, and Beautiful. at UBS, I, I spend a lot of my time dealing with emerging market um, uh, individuals, wealthy families and wealthy entrepreneurs. So I was um, heading various teams. So I, I had a luxury of actually coming across quite a number of different jurisdictions from, from um, Turkey is one of them, obviously, but then Israel, Greece, Africa, I spent some time on um, Middle East and a bit of Russia as well. And actually also Latin America, even though I don't speak Spanish, which was a bit bit, bit uh, useless to, to be the head of the Latin team. But I did it and I enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, and then in my final years at UBS, I moved to another team which um, looks at family offices. So these are basically within the wealth management space, as we call um, the coverage of these clients. Um, there's, a, there's a separate team that looks at the, the very large families that, that have very specific needs, quite often uh, complex product needs. And that's why we had teamed up with the investment bank. Uh, and would uh, offer them um, their services both on the wealth management side and the investment bank side. I, I left in 2020 and did a um, bit of soul searching and then um, ultimately uh, set up a, a small consultancy boutique with my uh, co-author Nick. Um, and we've been doing that um, for the last, I would say, two and a half years. Um, it's it's something that we we don't do 100% of our time. We do it for some of our time. It's, it's consulting a few of the families we know. Um, besides that, I also um, spend time on something entirely different, which, which I jumped into because a friend of mine asked me whether I would want to join him there. And that's in, in the renewable energy space. So we, we advise uh, funds and, and developers on m and transactions. Um, and that's been also good fun, slightly unrelated to, to the book. And the book uh, came out as a product of what Nick and I had experienced over the last 15 years in the bank. And we were trying to really put in, in, in our words and thoughts what we see as the challenges of, of these families and, and how they should think about these challenges. Um, so we don't give any prescriptive uh, exact solutions to problems, but rather provide a framework for different topics and, and how we would approach it. And, and that's, I think that's one of the beauties of that, that business, that every family is very different. I mean, they have similar needs and similar challenges, but the ultimate situation is different. And you then need to come up with, with, with creative ideas how to you know, uh, meet their needs and uh, their demands in the best way. Well, Barish, we'll, we're certainly going to be getting into that. Yeah. I wanted to just circle back because you, you sure. uh, on top of your PhD, you also have an MBA. I, I think we should, we should slip that in. So, right. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So that was um, part of um, an exchange program with our German school at a uh, university at the time. So I spent a year in Kentucky, which, which, which was a very, actually very delightful. But if you if you tell people that you've spent a year in Kentucky, they usually uh, start chuckling a little bit. And um, I have to say, I have no regrets whatsoever. It was it was good fun, but it is a bit far off the the mainstream, let's say. Yeah. Well, like everything, once you once you actually discover it and you have an open mind, 
everything everything is there's something discoverable so you went from bavarian beer to, to kentucky bourbon <laughs> that's, eh? that's correct yeah. um and married to a french woman living in london so i also have that uh, in common with you and um wanted to just ask you about your experience at ubs where my son's working actually the idea of emerging market wealth management what's particular about that i i'm i'm guessing it's things like uh, channels, confidentiality, maybe issues of corruption. I don't know. That's my, it's my, my head goes to that. How does wealth management look differently in these emerging markets compared to working in the typical Western? Yeah. So within UBS, you had uh, the emerging markets unit, which was around 100 people. And then you had um, what we call a domestic business, um, which was probably 300 people, maybe so it was significantly larger. And one of the big differences is, first of all, that the, the client doesn't sit in the UK normally. So over the last few years, actually, more and more have migrated towards London. But the the, the core proposition is is, is a cross border business. So people actually live in their respective uh, countries, and so you interact with them. Um, in a very different way, I would say, than um, my my colleagues in the domestic business. So they would email each other, they would see each other quite often for lunch, things like that, and then obviously telephone each other. Whereas we would um, do uh, phone conversations a lot, and then, and that's actually I think one of the big the big fun aspects of that job is to you travel. So you travel, you spend three four days on the ground. You typically go from one person's home or office to another and then you come back after three days um, with all the different information that you, you you took on and 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 you distributed to them and then you work you work again from the office with them uh, via via email or via via phone um that's one thing then the other thing is i think um the the, the products are not at all geared towards tax efficiency so if you are um, a resident domicile client like uh, like uh, somebody living here and uh, being from britain they would typically try to uh, optimize um, their capital gains tax or their interest income and the products are far more um, specifically geared for that whereas um, somebody abroad they they come to the uk and, and, and bank in the uk or in switzerland and any other of these relatively known uh, offshore jurisdictions is for um, access to a sophisticated financial system um, which they quite often don't have at home so just looking at turkey they, they there is a wealth management business in turkey as well locally um, but the product suite is, is more limited the investment universe is typically local so you can invest in turkish stocks but not necessarily in the global universe more and more it, it changes but that's kind of the origin of it then um, geographic diversification is something that a normal British bank uh, client would not consider much. But for somebody based in Russia or in Israel, it's very, very important that they have a pocket of money outside of their country because they never know what's going to happen. Right? Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I think those are the, the, the two main reasons. And obviously, being very uh, blunt and, and honest about this, Back in the day, uh, from, from the 50s to, I would say, well into the 90s, people also hit money uh, for, for tax reasons, which is something sure. ha which has been cleaned up a lot, I would say. And, and I joined uh, UBS in 2006. That was kind of the, the final 
moments of this old old days and i always wondered what is this strange business that they have that where they earn a lot of money exactly see i mean secrecy there's a good way of privacy a good way but there was also a negative aspect to that and i think that was cleaned up dramatically after the financial crisis and i would say at least for us i can speak and i think that's true for most of the banks they really are uh, now far more rigorous and, 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 and clean in that sense and they would not tolerate any money that is not clearly declared um when you're talking about the emails for certainly for the conversations i have with my broker over in in america there are limitations on what they're allowed to say and the the whole malarkey of of the let's say uh, security of each message is such a yeah pain in the butt i don't i hope it's a little better yeah. freer over here it's it's a very good point that you raise here because quite quite a few clients would only want to use WhatsApp uh, because that was a secure channel for them. And WhatsApp specifically is absolutely forbidden in banks because the bank obviously doesn't know what you're writing. So they need, to, from a compliance perspective, be able to monitor what is going on between you and the client. And, and that's why you have to use the official channels such as email. But there are some clients that are very concerned about that from a privacy perspective, and they wouldn't use it. And and then you're in between and try to, to 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 manage both sides. We're gonna so. we're gonna lose my client if you don't allow WhatsApp. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So let's um, Barish, get get into your your book um, titled Leadership and Wealth: Mastering the Opportunities of Wealth in Your Family, Firm, and Society, which you wrote with Nick Perryman. Yeah. Tell us what made you write this book and and specifically looking at those three elements of family firm and society yeah so i mean one of the reasons um we, we decided to set up our own consultancy firm is because whilst we thought that us was actually a great a great bank for 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 these wealthy individuals because they really have wealth management at the core of what they do it's not a sideshow it's not something they added onto their strategy it's really that's their uh, raison d'etre. Um, as a bank, you still have certain constraints, and and there, there are two things that are highly concerning. One is um, the regulation is, is 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 very strict, and so you have to choose what what products you want to offer, what what advisory services you want to offer, and quite often that meant rationalizing certain things and not offering certain things because it's just too expensive to to maintain for the bulk of the clients. And on the other hand, um, you have a, a, a profit motive clearly as, as a bank, and 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 certain certain things were just too costly, and and that's why they were not offered, and 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 it, it created a certain incentive structure uh, inside inside banks. And if you once you're outside of that, and you, you can really um, take the the side of the client, and and one of our uh, key motors is that you, we sit on 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 their side of the table when we when we have discussions. You you can you can dispense some of these things and and, and the more we thought about this, we said okay, actually there's quite a, a there's quite a, a number of topics that we should probably um, address in, in a more structured fashion. And then thinking about it for quite some time, brainstorming how we could structure that whole thing, we said in the end it's about the, the three spheres of influence that. Um, that our clients have. So one is their, themselves and their family. That's the core and the small, the biggest uh, area of influence for them. But then there's also their firm. And this, this is a bit driven by the fact that 85% of our clients were 
either owner or used to be owners of, of businesses. So the business really is, is an important consideration for them. And then lastly, and this is something that I think has developed more so over the last few years, is the impact on, on, the, on their society they live in. So this is, this is a concept I think in the Western world is far more established, but uh, in the last 10, 15 years, emerging market clients have also been more concerned about about uh, philanthropy and, and and impact investment and other topics that that are in this in this sphere and, and what sort of legacy they want to leave behind and then within those three spheres we say okay so there are effectively two things to look at one is how do i lead uh, in in that segment so how do i lead myself to begin with how am i happy um how do i lead my family how do i make sure that the family um has a certain culture that means it can um survive over the generations? And then how do I invest the wealth we have in that pocket? So is it the family money? Is it the firm's money? Or is it money that we want to spend in society on, on certain certain things? So that was kind of the the idea behind the book. And then we've spent, yeah, probably a year um, to, to put it together. And um, we, we there was a, the, 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 the task we put ourselves is really to have a mix of personal experience and and really try to make bring it to life by examples where people hopefully can um, associate with, um, but also not just believing our word, but um, backing it up with with academic research and say look this is actually um, at the forefront of what other people are thinking about. And and quite honestly, when you then look how the banks are operating, and UBS again I would say is rather at the forefront, but speaking to other colleagues at other banks, you realize you, you, there's quite a gap between what is being practiced internally and what could be practiced. And this is, this is basically our, our pitch to, to, to clients to say, look, this, you, can, you can actually do this better. Well, it, it is quite crazy to think that there's a sort of two sides at some level when you have a client, you're on the other side. Um, it raises eyebrows for me, the the marketer, for me, the businessman, and it also points to an industry that has is a lot of obscurity for people who don't work in banking. It seems like a a very foreign uh, business. You know, it's basically money making money, and, and that's what it is. But one of the things that really struck me, Barsh, about reading your book and, and something I took great pleasure in discovering was your quest and let's say focus on happiness i did not expect this book a leadership and wealth to focus not obviously it's not the only focus but to have mm. so much about happiness so i wanted to ask you how do you what constitutes happiness in the world of the wealthy so the uh, the, the reason why we brought this up is this in the end, you you have conversation with with clients uh, on their money matters quite often. But the closer you get to them, you get to know them, and they get to know you, and you become hopefully part of their trusted circle. And and then you realize that they they have this, the same issues, if not more issues, when it comes to actually achieving happiness, because that's ultimately why we hopefully all exist, right? Um, and and that's why we thought it, it, it's maybe useful to 
to look at this topic and 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 just uh, and analyze what, what has been researched in this area and, and give people that um, feel um, addressed by this book an opportunity to to read up on the material and then it does help that philip uh, that that nick is um a, a psycho has a psychology degree by background so it was it was is one of his favorite subjects i think to to dive into that and 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 talk about happiness and then i think happiness everybody will define differently but for us i think the 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 important thing how to achieve happiness is if 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 you are you know if if you moderate yourself in terms of comparing yourself with other people on the one hand side and and also moderate your consumption. So just you know, though if if you try to stick to those two uh, guidelines and in, 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 in guiding principles, you are more likely to to achieve happiness because it is not material uh, wealth per se that makes you happy, but it does help clearly to to have have money. Um, but then you need to put it into perspective and say okay, what what actually. Um, keeps me happy and 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 if you constantly compare yourself to other people that have the latest uh, Learjet or whatnot that's just that's just not going to be a good recipe to for happiness so you need to find your inner peace and 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 and, and be, be be clear about what it actually means and it's probably different for every every person hello this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French history podcast our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. I would also argue that it, it becomes harder to find. It's like there's so many other things. You're not worried about getting food on the plate. You, you're worried about whether I can get the, the right table at the right restaurant. And that's a big deal. And uh, well, when is my Lamborghini beginning showing up? It's, oh gosh, it's coming on the 16th. I really want it on the 15th. And so there are all these other things that just cloud our understanding of ourselves. And then you have all the hangers on and, and the leeches who are taking advantage of you or at least living yes. off of you. Yeah. And, and uh, who do you trust? And, and like any big CEO, there's this phenomenon of actual loneliness because no one something i experienced talking to a lot of veterans of the second world war they wouldn't want to talk to me because i've never been there and so when you're uber wealthy talking to somebody who's uber wealthy mm. you, you know you you can roll in the same you know jeep if you will but everybody else is sort of distant and why are they talking to me what are they trying to do and so this this mistrust has to be part of it and and it it makes it harder for you to link back in i'm thinking to who you are and, and to tap into that happiness absolutely and i think it becomes coming back to what i said at the, at the, at the outset it becomes more and more difficult the more detached you are from the actual wealth creation so the, the mm. founders quite often are 
happy people because they they've achieved what they wanted and they fulfill themselves but then it's the next generation that were basically born rich and they need to find themselves in the uh, they find they need to find themselves a, a, the, the right role in life right uh, and for for the founding uh, people it's it's more about ensuring that their legacy lives on and, and I, I felt that quite quite astonishingly a lot of these first generation entrepreneurs are very very much at, in peace with themselves and and they don't have these issues with when is my ferrari coming i've I frankly have never come across anyone like that they're typically you would never see them um, you would never think that they are particularly wealthy they, they are normally dressed have normal offices uh, for the most part and and they're just happy with what they do and they're just passionate about what they do it's it's really afterwards when you're given all these opportunities and you have almost this anxiety about okay i need to do something with it and i need to uh, prove to my my older brother and my father and my mother and whoever else was a big big benchmark for them that they are also worth something and these people are actually quite often more challenged to to find happiness yeah is there is there not in your view with these first for not i don't want to call them the first generation but that the ones who actually make it mm. they that their level of fulfillment is also related to the level of hardship that they went through in order to make it it's not like they went through war but they they bust their butt and to begin with they probably hey, come from a a lesser background and they and they kick some ass and they work 18 hours a day and they have some fuck ups and they have some situations and they gristle through it and then they get through it. That experience grounds you. 100% and I, and, I agree with you. And the, and the lack of that hardship makes me worried about the scratch on my new Ferrari. Yeah, I think that's a very, very fair, fair uh, description. And clearly, I have not seen them um, getting successful. So I've just seen the end product. But uh, as you rightly say, they, they have gone through um various challenges and especially in emerging markets where you know rule of law is quite often not as grand so it's you it's there's high uncertainty even if you are successful that you actually can keep your money that you'd made these people are typically also not um highly educated from a from a traditional perspective they are street smart they, they know really how to survive uh on the street and uh, and i mean this in, in a really positive way right um whereas then the next generation they obviously been sent to to howard and and whatnot and, and they are highly sophisticated and very educated but they have not had the hardship and that's why maybe they find it more challenging to be happy yeah and i, I my belief is barish in a lesser wealthy environment the same issue exists that people who are much less wealthy but who haven't been through hardships, they might get worried about their mini Morris being scratched. You know what I mean? At a different level, the un misunderstanding of what constitutes life and the achievement of mm -hmm. happiness. And the one of the, you, you cite um, John Digman, the psychologist, when you talk about, it, and it was something I, I really hadn't really dug into, that the big five personality traits, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And of course, if you haven't come across them, there's certainly the last one is the one that sort of gets your eyebrow because it, it doesn't seem quite as positive as the other four. <laughs> but in your experience, Barish, what are, which, which are the high quality traits that bring up more, more likely some sense of fulfillment and success? Mm. So we have actually used that, that model 
quite extensively later on. So it is being introduced, I think, in the earlier chapters. And then um, one of the core aspects of, of wealth management is understanding your, your risk profile. And that is something we have spent a lot of time in this book on, or I have spent a lot of time on it in terms of pages, because I really feel quite strongly about this. And I and it, it basically is the is the starting point um, of of how much uh, how you invest. So once you you've really established well what your risk appetite really is, only then you can advise a client on on the asset allocation, what sort of portfolio they should hold and when you talk about risk profiling there are two things to consider one is the objective ability to take risk and that is basically determined by um, by your personal balance sheet how much money do you have in access to what your commitments are and it's a fairly simple number to arrive at and most of the wealthy people should have a very high ability to take risk because they are wealthy, right? And they have low, normally less less debt than the average person. So fewer commitments, so easy. But then we actually look at the more interesting part of the willingness to take risk. And for that, we, have, um, we, we would typically profile, people ask them a number of questions and the questions don't seem to matter really in terms of a financial uh, angle. But that's exactly the point. So you're trying to tease out whether these people have a certain trait one way or the other across those five dimensions you mentioned. And, and based on that, we can then actually uh, look at um, and compare them to a sample of, of uh, a representative sample of, 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 of entrepreneurs in this case, and say, are they actually more or less um, uh, of that of that personality trait? So in the book, actually, we have a, a distribution, um, what is what an average successful entrepreneur looks like in terms of those five personality traits. Um, so that is that is something that is in there. And I, to be honest, I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly uh, which which traits these are. But normally they are open-minded, uh, that more open-minded than the average probably. They are, and that's one of the interesting parts. They are less agreeable than the average. And that's something when you ask these questions without knowing why you're asking them, people typically would answer to the question, would you consider yourself as a as a nice person that tries to find compromise uh, when you debates with people? And the normal answer is, yeah, I would try that. But actually, as a matter of fact, that's that means you are less risk averse, you're more risk averse because you don't want to expose Offend yourself somebody. as standing out, exactly, as stand out basically. But a successful entrepreneur quite often is like that. They are standing out and that means sometimes they have to be disagreeable. Uh, so that for me was one of the eye openers when I actually looked into this from a more academic perspective that it, for me in hindsight is plausible, but it, it, didn't, you know, it didn't register with me beforehand. Um, so then we would really then look at at these personalities after having um, gone through those questions, compare them to the sample, and then from that we would actually come up with a risk profile that uh, we we deem appropriate. I, it's absolutely brilliant that insight. I absolutely fundamentally agree with it. In today's world, uh, the way my my brain is working as I'm thinking, we have created a world that is generally risk averse where we don't want to hurt our five-year-old child, you know, they have them scratch their knees, or we can't play contact sports anymore. Yeah. 
Um, if we can, we take pills to avoid all forms of pain and, and uh, let's live sanitized lives forever. <laughs> if, if, I'm a, if I'm a wealthy individual and I like to drive fast cars, for example, at Le Mans, or I like to jump out of planes, parachutes, hopefully that work, is there a strong link with my ability to have risk in my finances? If my yeah, personality is that I would way? say that's, that is um, typically the case. Um, there is, I, I would say there's definitely a correlation. Um, people that are, and quite, quite often, by the way, wealthy people are very risk averse in terms of their financial wealth. Um, but um, they are, the, the, those personalities that like the attributes you just mentioned, they tend to also like to invest their financial wealth in a, in a racier manner than the average person. Quite often, the, the, the normal entrepreneur takes all their risk in, in their business and they are very bold, clearly, otherwise they wouldn't be where they are. But then when it comes to their savings, they take a very conservative stance quite often. They just say, this is what I earned. I don't want to lose it. I don't want that the family will suffer from this. So there's a very uh, strong, strong separation in their minds. But then within that subgroup, uh, there are people that, that are risk lovers. And I, I would tend to see these people then also taking risks in others, other walks of life. Probably a question for Nick and um, relationship with death at, mm -hmm. at some level is what this underpins. Are you going for legacy and, and the immortality of your name? Is it, uh, is it just about the experience of life and the fact that you do die and then you become more aware of that? I suppose spirituality must come into it as well. Yes, um, I, I definitely. Um, and there's, there's probably no one answer for, for all cases, but uh, we do see the, the, the entrepreneurs that are, you know, reaching the, the life of end of life cycle, so to speak, to to become more, you know, concerned about these topics, and 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 mostly, I would say they they want to do something before before it happens in order to ensure that things are you know going well for the for the remainder of the family. There are some that don't like that subject, and it's not something we would proactively address unless we get an, an in so to speak in the conversation uh, even though it is a very important topic but more most of them are quite um conscious about it and, and they they want to talk about it and uh, have their thoughts on, on how how things should go from here and then there's as i said there's a, a small minority i would say that that rather avoid the topic until the end uh, than even well, even the family members then you speak to the younger younger family members they ask you to how can you not talk to him about this because you know we still haven't sorted out the inheritance we still don't know who's going to lead the, fam the family sorry the company afterwards and that's tricky and if you kind of want to help but uh, yeah there's a big end. difference in conscientiousness and consciousness Yes. Yeah. So this this becomes relevant in in the transmission story. Uh, so you know, if you've been running the company, you're let's say a man who's or, you know, be let's say you're just generalizing, and you know, eighty five year old man still has great pleasure getting to the office mm. and running the roost, and and the sir, it would be good, interesting to talk about. You know, what if you had a heart attack driving to work today? What happens? Oh, not, I don't have time for that. Uh, 
and the idea of transmission is is a really well you know hiring the next generation do you keep it in the family having a ceo i mean it clearly has to be related to that conversation for for these entrepreneurial wealthy individuals yes yeah and um i mean i i in a very small setting i see that in my own family so my my grandfather who lived until 98 i think um had a small textile business in turkey and uh, he ran it until he was probably 90 and uh, I, a part of the reason why he lived so long i think is, is because he had to get up every morning put his suit on shave himself get into the car go to the business go to the office meet with clients whatnot and um i think he had a bit of a challenge to to let go and uh, he, he had two sons and a daughter my father so to speak he was out of the picture because he moved to germany my 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 aunt she um she uh, i think wasn't particularly interested in that and and then so her his other son um uh, basically took over and um and he has been running it successfully and now actually his son is, has taken over from him but I do remember when I was young, there was there were challenges between the two, and he just wasn't happy with that. And so my grandfather wasn't happy with with how it was done. And and I think in the end he found peace uh, towards the end of it. But that is probably something that happens in in a lot of these entrepreneurial families. Yeah, this word you use, control. You're running the beast. You're running. The, you're you're the top chef, and and there's always this element of control. You have the controlling ownership of the of the shares you, you you make the final decisions so you are controlling how things operate mm. and 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 there's the power of of all that included so it can be very hard to let go so an area of interest i think that should be for everybody is is the notion of transmitting to your next generation and i i always think of it uh it, not necessarily just in wealthy terms but as an immigrant term when someone first generation immigrant comes into the country they're not wealthy they're they're busting their butts so that their children can become a lawyer or whatever and uh, and and they they transmit that in the lawyer then the next generation they have kids but they they lose that thirst and in similar vein for me when you think about the the first generation wealthy create wealth creators yeah. so give us what would be your best insights as to advice on how to how to transmit the right values and, and get that some kind of thirst or whatever it is that vigor of life? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's that's a, that's a very good question. And um, there are many examples where it didn't go particularly well. And I don't think it was because of no interest or no no um appreciation for the topic by the uh, elder generation but also maybe just simply a matter of time so they were so absorbed by their by their undertakings that they just couldn't find the time and then the kids grew up normally in a traditional sense the mother was looking after them um and and the father was is just working in the business but i mean there was a, uh, opposite examples but i think that's where it becomes quite obvious and and the ones that are successful are the ones that have actually spent early on time um getting the the family around the table and and really creating a certain cultural mindset that they deem as the one that is 
worthwhile pursuing over generations. And, and they are really trying hard to, to instill that into, into the next generation. So there's definitely an active effort needed from the older generation towards the younger generation, um, be it in, I mean, in in the most in a most formalistic sense, you have family charter. So you have like if, if you have a large family and, and the the wealth creator decides to set up a, a family office, a family trust. Quite often, there's a family charter where there are really values for the for the family. These are the values. This is how we we should decide on things, and so it's very explicit. Quite often it's not the case so often this is more implicit and it's just um um the the utterings of the of the the elder statesmen so to speak to towards the family but even that requires effort and you need to do that on an ongoing basis you need to make sure that um your, your kids understand the worth of money and and that they have to earn it and, and it's not it's just not for free everything that education is important and and whatever else values you you deem appropriate and i have seen also the opposite cases where none of that effort was made and and the kids are a disaster frankly and and you know exactly and and then the father realizes that the mother and then they say okay so what am i going to do now uh, i don't have a natural successor and then they're desperately looking for other options so it's something you can try sometimes it doesn't work maybe but i think if you really uh, focus on that topic as as, as the father or mother that has created the wealth then you can also you know, pass that that culture on. It's really Absolutely. about culture. Culture. Yeah, well. yeah. But and I would like to ask: to what extent virtue is is important in that? Let's say that you know, and I'm I don't mean to be rude or anything, but I the image I have of people in banking and the uber wealthy is that they're not exactly a lovey-dovey kind of good people. They oftentimes are making it on the backs of other people. They, they talk about agreeableness. Oftentimes they're not quite as agreeable. Um, in that family charter, if you ever constructed one, I think it would be really interesting to understand to what extent virtue is placed into it and, and virtue itself is a conversation. Um, yes, so we have done this uh, for, for a few clients. Um, and and typically we try to so we, we try to maybe come up with a proposal already because if you do this all day long you have obviously a far more structured approach towards it if, if you just let them do the, it themselves it would just not really get anywhere so you try to guide the conversation and by the way families that have been successful in this had the following uh, types of values in there and virtues definitely features in in there and then they need to identify then they need to really go through it line by line and identify themselves and is this something really i want to actually push uh for myself because otherwise it's just a piece of paper right so it needs to it needs to really live. come from them exactly they need to live it and and that's why it's it's really a a, a conversation more than a, a one-way uh discussion around so it's, it's something an ongoing debate that you have and and then if you really then want to have a family charter that is print carved in stone so to speak um then then you would have that uh, rigorous debate before you do that before you publish it and then some some of these family charters also specifically allow um for for changes in the future because they they accept that what is right today may not be right in 100 years and 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 they give um 
future generations the opportunity to 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 challenge the the, the charter and and give an opportunity to to change it to how they see and to own it and to own own it absolutely it's risky because you may then divert and not have uh the part that uh, that you initially had in mind for them but it is you know it is maybe yeah more uh, more robust towards future impacts or changes so i want to end uh our, our conversation on, on a passage i really found interesting you were quoting uh towards the end of the book as i recall uh, on leadership a an article that was written for mckinsey and i'm going to quote the expression it's a rather long one but it it brings back the issue of virtue and morality mm-hmm. Management books and commentaries often oversimplify, seldom providing useful guidance about the skills and behaviors needed to get things done. Pfeffer, the the author, goes on to observe that leadership has become a morality tale with writers advocating authenticity, well-being, truth-telling, trust-building, and so on, often with limited empirical evidence. Whilst there is nothing inherently wrong with these leadership objectives, this moral framing of leadership oversimplifies the true complexity of leadership. I thought that was a fascinating observation. And, and, and in our society today, we, we're so pushed towards virtue signaling and, mm. and d- doing good. So in your experience, Barish, with being in face with so many leaders, how, how does one uh, manage the reputation we get, the the cancellations we get, and and try to have some kind of morality and yet be successful, which includes that lack of agreeableness that you talked about. A lot of a lot of um, people, I think, when they think about leadership, is is what they see in movies, right? And including myself. So you know, you Gordon watch- Gecko. <laughs> Gordon Gecko, or you you watch some military movie where somebody dies on the battlefield and saves everybody around him and is just a hero. And and my personal my experience with leadership myself is it's not that theatrical in, in reality. In reality, what what people that look for guidance and leadership need is somebody that is original like stays stays authentic rather not original authentic and honest and and if 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 i'm not happy with something and i can just say it uh without offending somebody uh that actually long term um made me think is you you can have more impact on the other person in terms of leadership if if you try to too hard to to follow these um, um, these yeah, these examples from from textbooks and and from movies really, uh, then then you just don't come across very credible and and authentic and people don't need you to give us a, a stump speech uh, uh, that is so amazing that everybody's just blown off their socks and, uh, and and only then they will follow your lead. No, I don't think so at all. I think it's really about being somebody that people can can trust and and how do you build trust it's it's just having an honest relationship with people that for me is is far more important than some of the other features that that people are propagating in in their books so yeah but that's that's my five cents on it basically love it in the end of the day it's it's being relatable uh for for others who are followers and and i think vulnerable is an interesting Uh, empathic uh, vulnerable being a being being a human yeah, being a human that that tries to do the right thing for the team, I think that that's when you get, get followership. It's crazy, you know. We, whether we're talking about wealthy people or or just you know, whatever types of people, we're, we're 
it really does get back down to just be human. Barish, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I really even, I enjoyed the book. I must say I was, I'm not expecting to, to be uh, completely frank. I, you know, I was thinking leadership and wealth. Hmm. Okay, what is that going to be looking like? And uh, and the the number of topics you talked about for me touched me, the thinking about the transmission to children, whether or not you're wealthy. It's just how do you transmit to children? I think that's such a relevant topic. The, the nature of our personalities and, and what makes success, what is happiness. So I really want encourage anyone listening to go and check out Leadership and Wealth, Mastering the Opportunities of Wealth in Your Family, Firm, and Society, which you can get on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> and how could anyone get in touch with you, your business, uh, and yeah, follow what um, you're up I to? I mean, so if, if you want to get in touch with me, um, I'm not sure, should I give you my email address? Whatever otherwise, you wish. Uh, otherwise, um, we have a website. Um, I can, I can. So if you just Google my name, you'll you'll find our website, or um, get in touch with my email address, which is basically Barris Barris, even though it's Barris, but it's Barris at enodo e n o d o dot capital. Um, that's 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 how you can reach me, and I'll I'll aim to come back to you as soon as I can. But that will be very quick usually. I will put that in the show notes, Barish. Thank you so much. And it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minterdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on Minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Precipitating the danger to feel
free Trust in my reason And let me show you why I'm a convinced man Practicing my lines I'm a convinced man Here in these confines A convinced man In the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man to the test I'm a convinced man I'm ready for an arrest I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.